when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, the wider world was introduced to Donald Trump's new press secretary, Sean Spicer, who christened his tenure in the White House briefing room with several days of big league lying. Now, this may not be Spicer's choice. White House insiders have turned out by the dozens to tell multiple newspapers about how Trump's first week has been a tumultuous mess, with Trump lashing out at numerous petty slights. Spicer has been tasked with offering up forceful responses to nonsensical complaints. And we have a highlight reel to share with all of you. Meanwhile, Trump has been taking numerous steps to begin the implementation of his policy choices, including several geared toward the fulfillment of promises he's made about immigration. Naturally, that wall he wants to build at taxpayer expense, it's taken center stage. But there have been in this first week some curious omissions and at least one surprising addition to his plans, all of which we will break down for you. And finally, as the Democratic base takes to the streets to organize against Trump, Democratic elected officials have chosen another path, a surprising deference to the president. Now, this has primarily taken the form of Democrats by the bushel offering a rubber stamp to Trump's cabinet appointments, which has fostered a deep disappointment and even some anger among their voters. So what are the Democrats playing out here? In all likelihood, it's a losing strategy. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. Here's what happened first. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to all lovers of soft sensuality. Welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, your one-stop shop for how to be sand in the gears for the next four years. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and I am with, as always, Zachary D. Carter. Hello, everyone. And Arthur D. Laney. D. Laney. <laughs> Great to have you here. Epic joke out of the gate from yeah, Arthur. <laughs> killing it. Killing it right now. Also killing it. Um, Trump, first four, five, six days. Whoa. Oh, getting it done. Getting it done, son. Signing executive orders and um, and leaking like a sieve yes. to the press. Things don't actually seem that great up there. And uh, one of the ways in which we saw a lot of not greatness uh, was uh, we've had our first few official press briefings from beleaguered, perhaps embattled, Sean Spicer, who uh, apparently got the order from the big boss to stop wearing tan suits like like a chump and put on some dark suits and then go out there and really like blurt his full face off the lying has been shocking and cry e- even for people accustomed to the amount that donald trump and the lies cr- the crying too the crying too sean sean spicer is is uh 
is crybaby face over the fact that every that he feels demoralized that people are giving Donald Trump such such stick right out the gate. I'll remind everyone, Sean Spicer was an RNC spokesperson. Basic job is to give people stick all at all times and demoralize them. So guess what? Now now you're on the hook. Now you're in the barrel, bro. It started anyway, right but, away. But Arthur, take us take us through some of this stuff, man, because it's been wild. Less a, a day after the inauguration, Saturday. Right. He, he wasn't going to be a press conference, but he came out there in a tan suit, and he was pissed. Always a mistake to come out of a tan suit in Washington and get pilloried for that shit. We know Ask that. Barack Obama. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was really mad that everyone noticed how small the crowds were at the inauguration, which you could see with your own eyes in a photo or you know any photo. There were also attendance figures from the D.C. Metro. So this wasn't controversial until... Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way, in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual. This was also the first time that fencing and magnetometers went as far back on the wall preventing hundreds of thousands of people from being able to access the mall as quickly as they had in inaugurations past. Inaccurate numbers involving crowd size were also tweeted. No one had numbers because the National Park Service, which controls the National Mall, does not put any out. By the way, this applies to any attempts to try to count the number of protesters today in the same fashion. We do know a few things, so let's go through the facts. We know that from the platform where the president was sworn in to 4th Street holds about 250,000 people. From 4th Street to the media tent is about another 220,000. And from the media tent to the Washington Monument, another, another 250,000 people. All of this space was full when the president took the oath of office. We know that 420,000 people used the D.C. Metro public transit yesterday, which actually compares to 317,000 that used it for President Obama's last inaugural. This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period, both in person and around the globe. Wow. I don't. That is insane. I just let's 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 just ask why. Aside from it it being full of lies. Why? Why? Why is he talking about this? I I don't get it. You know what? A lot of people came for the inauguration. The photos showed a lot of people come for the inauguration. Yes, it was a lot of people. There were a lot of people here. It was an impressive event. Okay? It was (laughs) – A a quick housekeeping note. His figure for the Obama uh, inaugural Metro ridership was – Incorrect. He was completely the, the, wrong. Okay, <laughs> okay. but uh, another housekeeping note: uh, self-contradiction. He said, first of all, it was you know it was the biggest crowd ever. Second of all, hundreds of thousands of people were stuck in line. This is well, which is it? This this, huh? this is this is you can't have both. There's there's no reason in the, in the wide world to litigate this. No, this is the most important point. It's it's all what what we've learned from this. Okay, this I think. What we've learned from this. What we learned from this is that it is so easy, like falling off a log, to bait Donald Trump into a dick measuring contest. And it is unfortunately not hard enough for Sean Spicer to resist everyone else's temptation to go out and, and, and fight about the size of Donald Trump's 
dick. All right. So in public, it's crazy. What did Sean Spicer learn? Uh, he came out the next day in a, or on Monday, two days later, in a blue suit. Uh, yeah. Uh, because Trump reportedly did not like his tan suit, which is one of you like a strange number of details. You really can't talk about breadth and depth and girth in a tan suit. I mean, that that's true. You're well, not supposed we, we just, to wear a tan suit in January. That That is actually a sartorial rule. I mean, I'm kind of with Trump on this one. Well, the point is, like, okay summer, we had an unusual amount of detail of everything that was happening in the White House from Trump's traitorous inner circle. Anyway, here's Sean Spicer <laughs> uh, talking about the same thing on Monday. And do you stand by your statement that that was the most watched inaugural I think, address? In sure. It was the most watched inaugural. When you look at – look. You look at just the one network alone got 16.9 million people online. Another couple of the networks, there were tens of million people that watched that online. Never mind the, the, the audience that was here. 31 million people watched it on television. Combine that with the tens of millions of people that watched it online on a device. There's, it's unquestionable. Okay. So, okay, just to be clear, what Sean Spicer did there was say on Saturday it was the biggest audience in person that anybody had ever had for an inauguration, right. yep. which is not true. And then he said on Monday that it, what he said was actually true because YouTube, because yeah. people watched it on the right. internet. And for all he lied know, about his lie. He compounded the lie. No, it's very possible. That, it's very possible, though, that, that across all platforms, it was the most viewed thing. But I mean, sure. But yes. how do, we, we can't quantify that. And the next inaugural will, by the same metric, be even more watched because the, there'll be more opportunities to do it. But But – he did conflate. He did conflate those two things, and I have to say though that one of the reasons he conflated those two things in that press conference is because Jonathan Carl, the ABC News reporter who started down this path asking questions, began asking about the actual crowd size, and then inexplicably changed the subject to most viewed, which is a completely different metric. And I think that Sean Spice is on better ground, you know, bragging about how many people watched. The thing because people tuned in and but, watched but it. We need we need to focus on how crazy this is. This person is now president of the United States with lots of stuff to do. He's signing all these executive orders. Like policy is happening in the White House. Sean Spicer can come out and talk about the the governing that is going on, and people can can you know ask questions about that and debate it. Instead, it's the second straight press conference where the hot topic is how big the crowd was yeah. at the inauguration. It's crazy and. It doesn't even matter. It I, just doesn't matter. At best, it makes them look bad because it wasn't – I, I think your, your can, point is that the White House itself invested all this energy into this topic. Can I just yes, say something about crazy. that though? Let me just say something about that. This is a quote from a – this is a quote from a member of the White House press corps uh, uh, who said, That said, I think we need to be careful as reporters and as journalists not to take the bait and not to get into an endless discussion about issues that are trivial. How many people were there? The crowd size. Just not important. That reporter who said that was ABC News' Jonathan Carl. And 24 hours later, that dumb motherfucker went into a press conference with Sean Spicer. And what the fuck did he ask him about? Fucking crowd size. I, I just Take ha- your own fucking advice. Oh, my God. I think it's Let's just it's just bizarre that this is what – It's all crazy. All right, guys. Well, we're going to we're gonna pivot to uh, a, a more substantive topic, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, believe uh, it or not. <laughs> Donald Trump, in a meeting with leaders from Congress, uh, for some reason, unprompted, uh, went on a rant about how he actually won the popular vote, which he lost by nearly 3 million. Yes. That he won it if you subtract the 3 to 5 million people – who voted illegally. 
and for some reason split tickets in all these places they voted Let's just illegally. Listen, to, you know listen to this. And so, and so uh, that was not a public thing, but it came out immediately, and it was more Sean Spicer fodder on Tuesday. The president believe that millions voted illegally in this election, and what evidence do you have of widespread voter fraud in this election, if that's the case? The president does believe that. He has stated that before. I think he stated his concerns of voter fraud and, and people voting illegally during the campaign, and he continues to maintain that belief based on studies and evidence that people have presented to him. But exactly what evidence? I, I, well, I, Speaker I, Ryan today said there's no evidence. The National Association of Secretaries of State say that they don't agree with the president's assessment. What evidence do you have? I, 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 as I said, I think the president has believed that for a while based on studies and information he has. Okay. That is crazy. Right. So Spicer, that is crazy. Did, Spicer did not cop to sharing the same beliefs as Trump does. And it's worth pointing out that this one of the studies that Trump keeps bringing up as evidence of this is a Pew report that the authors say say nothing of the kind about voter fraud. He was confronted about that uh, this week by David Muir, and and he uh, here it is. We have the clip. Here. Uh, let's do that because this was also nuts. this is Donald Trump himself on the same question on Wednesday. You have people that are registered who are dead, who are illegals, who are in two states. You have people registered in two states. They're registered in a New York and a New Jersey. They vote twice. There are millions of votes, in my opinion. Now. I'm going to get an investigation. You're David, now, David, you're, now David. you're now president of David, the United States. I'm, when you well, say of course, it's, it's, and I want the we, voting process to be legitimate. But now, what I'm asking, what I'm asking, when, that, when you say, in your opinion, millions of illegal votes, that is something that is extremely fundamental to our functioning democracy—a fair sure, and free sure, election. Sure. You say you're going to launch an investigation sure, into this. Done. What you have presented so far has been debunked. It's been called has, false. I take called, a look at the Pew report. I called the author of the Pew report last night. And he told me that they found no evidence really? of voter then fraud. Really? Then why did he write the report? He said no evidence of voter Excuse fraud. Me. Then why did he write the report? So According to Pew report, then he's then he's groveling again. You know, I always talk about the reporters that grovel when they want to write something that you want to hear, but not necessarily millions of people want to hear or have to hear. So you've launched an is, investigation. We're going to launch an investigation to find out, and then the next time. And and I will say this: of those votes cast, none of them come to me. None of them come to me. They would all be for the other side. None of them come to me. But when you look at the people that are registered, dead, illegal, and two states, and some cases maybe three states, uh, we have a lot to look into. All right. Groveling. Okay, so what what Muir could have said there, and I don't fault him for nothing, is that when people die, they are not magically removed. You know, their name isn't taken off a list right. at the clerk's office. Yeah, it's not something that happens in the last rites. Angels <laughs> don't come down and scrub the damn voting rolls. Like, the, like yeah, the priest by your bedside right. doesn't like, hang on, I got to call the secretary of state. Also, there are multiple people close to Trump who have voter registrations in two states. Because if you move, do you is the first thing you do after you, you know, before you've even unpacked your boxes, call the state secretary of state? In the state right. you're moving from. By like, the way, bye. <laughs> peace out. So the author of the report said, yes, there are there are dead people and people in multiple states for these totally innocent reasons. That's not fraud. There's, also, um, when you when you go back to uh, some of the, the old scandals here, the phony scandals surrounding, say, ACORN, right? People talk about voter fraud. What they're actually doing was voter registration fraud, okay? Right. When they, when they, they would sign people up and it would be like Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck. And so the voter registration form was – 
was was bunk. The, the trick behind this, the reason this is not voter fraud, is because a giant talking mouse and a giant talking duck do not ever actually show up at the, at, at the polls. That would vote. be a thing to see, though, wouldn't you, it? That would be pretty great. It doesn't happen. You look at that giant talking mouse, man. Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. So, what, so uh, on Tuesday, Sean Spencer said, we're not going to investigate this on Wednesday. The president said, we're watching a major investigation. He said, done. He said, it's done. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah, they're doing it. And this uh, this is really pernicious. I mean, this isn't as silly as he also crowd said, size. This is a, this is could be a pretext for disenfranchising of millions course, of people. Of course, and he said in that interview with Muir, he said none of the people who voted illegally came to vote for me. And it's like wow, none of them. How do you know that? I mean, look at if if you're imagining a weird conspiracy in which three million people get together and say, okay, we gotta we gotta help Hillary Clinton win the popular vote. It's just like what we'll do is we'll all co-locate in states where if we run up the score, it doesn't do any fucking good. <laughs> and while we're there, we'll vote for Republicans on the split ticket. Awesome plan, guys. It's a, it's like it's crazy and it's a lie. So okay? what it's I, not true. I, the reason I think these things, you know, maybe the crowd size is trivial. I think it's actually really grim that the White House came out. And this is what the the fights they wanted to pick. Their lying is so unbelievably brazen. We're not going to be able to trust anything they ever said. Isn't it also, though, bringing equally brazen responses from the media? I mean, Jake Tapper went on his show uh, earlier this week and just fucking laid the boom hammer on Sean Spicer on some of these claims. I I don't know what you mean by brazen. I'm saying the the White House lying is is uh, it's not going to stop. Okay, it's bad. They're lying like about a, nothing right now. They're lying when the stakes are nothing. Zero. You're right. You're they're right. lying over no, nothing. It makes no sense for Trump to undermine the legitimacy of an election that he won. It yeah, makes no sense. It's so crazy. It's it's weird. I mean, this is this is bad. This is going to be a it, bad it, four it, years. It's also it's also bad because you see the contours of how this man can become inflamed and what he will do in reaction to it. There's oh, nothing God. at stake here, and, and yet he's freaked out about the fact that only. The size of his crowd was only kind of massive. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. But I guess whatever. We're doomed. We're doomed. All right. All right. Doomed. We're not doomed. We're going to be fine. It's just going to be hard. Mm. Okay. It's going to be hard. Mm, you guys can help us, but it's going to be hard. All right. We got to. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Uh, we got to get to the rest of the show. It's uh, a fantastic show, I'm sure. I don't know. We haven't recorded it yet. <laughs> but, but I'm sure it'll be great. Uh, please stick around. We'll be right back.
Hey, we're back. And uh, now we're going to talk about immigration, where literally all the things are happening at once. And most of those things are terrible. Uh, Zach Carter is with us. Hi. And, uh, and whenever we want to talk about immigration, we are very fortunate to be able to turn to Elise Foley. Hello. So Elise Foley, uh, pretty great day on the immigration beat, I imagine. <laughs> I mean, if yeah, if the goal is having a lot to write about, it's been a it's been a good week. All right. So what are you writing about? Tell us. Tell us. Um, there's been such a welter of of a blizzard of things related to the immigration issue that have already come out uh, with the Trump administration. Obviously, no big plans legislatively have been set in motion, uh, but there is right now sort of this is kind of like now the defining moment for the Trump administration. Uh, tell us what's going on. So yesterday, Trump signed two executive orders. By yesterday, we mean Wednesday. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. No that worries. Against the rules. Uh, Trump signed two executive orders that are supposed to authorize and lead to building a border wall and then also to crack down on sanctuary cities and basically force um, local law enforcement to you know, do the, the bidding of uh, deportation agents. Um, so that's what we have seen so far this week. Um, it's possible that there will be more uh, after the taping of this, this podcast. But we've yeah, also true. seen... Um, some announcements not made yet, but to come potentially on refugees, stopping refugee admissions for like 120 days and then stopping them for Syrians in general, some sort of, um, keeping out people from various countries. So there is very likely more to come, but so far border wall ending sanctuary cities. Those have been his two big things. So, um, I guess it seems pretty clear that uh, President Trump at least intends to follow through on the campaign promises he made on this stuff. A lot of people, I think there have been some speculation that maybe it was just talk and reality would hit him and he wouldn't be able to do this stuff. How much of of, of this policy shift can he actually achieve through executive orders and, and what needs uh, what needs congressional approval? Well, so you can't just build a wall uh unilaterally have tried. necessarily <laughs> um you need you need money to do that and he always said that Mexico would pay for it um now he's kind of acknowledged that actually US taxpayers are going to have to pay for it until maybe he he says Mexico will reimburse us i think that um i'm i'm skeptical of that there being we'll no real see. enforcement mechanism um <laughs> right especially to the amount that uh that it would cost which is billions and billions billions of dollars. Um, but he has gotten um, there have been, you know, pretty clear indications that Congress is willing to put up some money for this. So, yeah, I mean, I think that some sort of construction is going to happen. Um, Congress has shown a willingness to give more money to fund more deportations, certainly, and has tried to do things against sanctuary cities in the past. So, um, he can't do everything through executive order, but he has buy-in from Congress to do certain things through executive order, certainly. And there is a lot of power from the president to set immigration um, enforcement priorities, which you saw with Obama in a way that Republicans didn't like. Um, now Trump can do it in a way that Democrats don't like. 
I want to make fun of the cost estimates a little bit. Sure, let's um, do that. Because there, there's, uh, there was a study that uh, you know one consulting firm put out over the summer about how much it would cost, and they said it would basically cost twenty five billion dollars to build a wall in the places where there is not currently a fence. So there's several miles of fencing along the border already. Right, right. So, several. 650. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot. And so assuming that you don't replace 650 miles, it's what, like about a third of the border um, yeah. is, is is this fence. Assuming you don't replace that with a wall, you, you leave the other two-thirds and just do the, do the wall there. They're, they're talking $25 billion with a big asterisk, which was that, the terrain is different in different places. And some places may actually cost more because, you know, there's water you have to deal with because, you know, there's a river for a lot of the border. Right. Um, there's there's just difficult terrain that, that can be difficult. So $25 billion is a very modest estimate, conservative <laughs> estimate. And Paul Ryan uh, today came out and said uh, on, on Thursday and, and was offering about $14 billion. In, in funding for this thing. Uh, the other thing I want to point out is that <laughs> the, the, he'll give the rest of the wall a voucher. This this consulting firm, uh, right, right. Uh, this consulting <laughs> firm said it would also take 16 years to build this 1,300 miles of wall, uh, which uh, is Trump a says he's going to oversee I, construction I, over I wanna, too, But I want to throw out some, some things on that. First of all, I think that it's um, actually pretty unlikely that they will try and build a wall along the entire border. Uh, they've already, you know, started to back away from that actually for a long time. It doesn't get pointed out as much as it probably should, but they're not, I, I don't think, going to even propose building something on those places where it would get washed away by water. Some of the terrain, you know, border people say that they don't need, border patrol people say they don't need a, a wall or fencing there. So, I think one issue in um, estimating the costs is, uh, frankly, that we don't know what this wall is even supposed to be. I mean, is it possible that the wall will just be the same as the fencing that already exists and just throw up a little bit more? I think it is. I, I Is it possible that Trump will follow through on his promise to have it be 40 or 50 feet and totally different from the fencing? That's possible, too. That's obviously a lot more expensive. Even the fencing, like you were talking about, um, that costs a lot of money, too. They they have been trying to build more fencing for more than a decade, haven't done it, because it costs a lot of money, and it's difficult to pull off. There's a lot of land that's owned privately that people don't want a fence on it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues here. Yeah, the land and water rights are really thorny. So I want to talk about two things that uh, we've not mentioned yet, and, and I don't think they've been brought up quite with the same forcefulness is the stuff we've already mentioned. Um, one is the idea of a Muslim registry, kind of like a steroidal version of the old NSEERS registry. The other is the from fate- From the Bush administration. Yes, the, yeah, from the Bush administration post 9-11. The other, the other, uh, the other issue, and, and maybe you know more about this one than the, than the Muslim registry, uh, is DACA, the fate of the people who are, who are uh, subject to the, the DACA rule. Um, the sort of speculative stuff we've heard from what's been a very leaky White House is that there's factionalism in Trump's inner circle over what to do about DACA uh, with sort of the Bannon faction saying you got to get rid of it and the Priebus and more establishment faction saying, no, nah, you got to leave it alone. And Trump, I'm told his instinct was not to mess with DACA. But what have you heard about this, if anything? 
I mean, I've heard basically the same stuff that you just laid out. I think that it's been tough for a long time for Republicans who want to get rid of DACA because Dreamers have done, frankly, a pretty incredible job over the past 10 or so years, maybe more, um, of presenting themselves to voters as this very, very sympathetic group, um, even the way that Trump has talked about them, or especially somebody like Paul Ryan has talked about them, is, you know, people who were brought here as children, no fault of their own, uh, they, you know, shouldn't necessarily be kicked out. These are, you know, good people who are in college, all of that. Uh, that has been, like, pretty, I'm, and I'm not saying it's not true, a pretty great messaging. And so it doesn't look so great politically to say, actually, these people who are, you know, in medical school, they should have to quit medical school and they can't be here anymore. We should make them be deported. Um, So it's been, I think, really easy for Republicans over the past few years to just pass a bunch of things to end DACA knowing that Obama would never let those happen. It's a lot harder to actually actually end DACA and suffer, you know, the potential consequences of people being really, really outraged about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think Trump, on the one hand, promised to end it. I mean, he said he would. That was a very specific promise. There's also pressure not to because it puts Republicans in a bad position. And the other thing I'll say about that is that he and they have said repeatedly that they won't do anything for legal status for people until they've done all this other border and enforcement stuff. If you take away DACA and you don't want to deport those people, you don't want to take away their uh, work authorization, things like that, you have to pass some sort of bill. They say they don't want to do that. So it puts them in a bad position to get rid of it. You know, there's one other thing that just occurred to me to mention here in this in this segment, and it's a thing that was proposed this week uh, that I don't even think I don't even think really counts as policy. Um, but the stated intention of this White House now is to use their forward-facing website to create uh, essentially a list of. Uh, people who have purportedly, and purportedly is their word, which means there's a real fuzzy area about who gets put on this list. People who have pur- illegal, undocumented immigrants who have who have purportedly committed crimes. There will be a, a just a, a blanket, I guess, list of names on a website somewhere pointing the jacuzzi finger at people. And again, we're talking about purported crimes. I don't know if we're talking about people who've been convicted of crimes or who are innocent until proven guilty, all that stuff that's supposed to be central to our values. This, Zach, to me, feels like where Trump fulfills his promise to just purely demonize people. There's a lot of stuff um, from from the Trump administration on this issue in particular, I think, where, where just the jerk factor is pretty high. I mean, I think instead of using the term undocumented immigrants, he's 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 calling them removable aliens. You saw me almost trip over that right now. Yeah. It's I mean, easy to trip over, but removable aliens. It's the technical term in his yeah. defense, <laughs> the mm-hmm. legal term. Yeah. But I'll give him that. 
But it's one that, you know, public officials have generally avoided using uh, in, in public settings. Especially right? in recent years. Yeah. Really a move away from especially aliens. People just don't say that anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to get my head around the fact that, you know, if there are criminal proceedings transpiring, obviously you have a defense attorney, you're mounting a defense. It's just creepy to me that you would be mounting a defense against uh, the the accusation you committed a crime while at the same time your name is on a White House website depicting you as a malevolent scofflaw. The other part of that that is more formalized that I'll say is that um, they said in one of the executive orders that they would publish a list of the crimes committed or perhaps arrests for uh, people who were um, that ICE requested that people law enforcement hold and then law enforcement release them. So the point of that is, you know, I, I don't think that that would be specific name of somebody, but it would be a list of, oh, my gosh, my local sheriff released this person who was arrested for, you know, a, a DUI or something. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say murder because the thing that I think people need to realize about sanctuary cities is that most of them are perfectly willing to turn over murderers and things like that. Right. It's not <laughs> this is not like a blanket policy, but um, a, a lot of it has that specific purpose to shame people and to freak people out. I mean, the way Trump talks about this is almost purely in the frame of these are people who are killing Americans. He brought up a bunch of Americans who have been killed by undocumented immigrants, whether it's murder, um, being hit by a car, things like that. That is his framing for how to look at undocumented people. Not as a, you know, not as a whole, specifically those people and, you know, if if you're listening to him, that's that's all there is. There's solely scary criminals. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's most dangerous and maybe sometimes we overlook uh, has the most dangerous potential. I guess we overlook it from D.C. because we're focused on policy and laws. Just just the like coarsening of civil society that this type of behavior can create. I mean, we we talked a little bit after his election about after Trump's election about the sort of increase in uh, invisible hate crimes that appeared to be uh, being committed. You know, when, when you start talking about people as removable aliens and making really clear that you want to be shaming public officials for not treating them, you know, roughly, uh, you know, you're you're inviting a, you're, you're inviting a lot of ill will into civil society. So I think it's kind of scary. Broadly speaking, is there anything about what we've seen this week that upsets you more than anything else? <laughs> I mean, I think that what upsets and concerns me is just the number of fallacies involved in the way um, supporters of what Trump is doing present their argument versus another argument. They present it sort of like there are opponents to deporting criminals or holding criminals in detention, that there are people who say that refugees should not be vetted at all. Neither of those things are true. The people on the other side still cooperate with ICE to some degree on certain people, especially um, you know, maybe not the way ICE wants, but there is is not a pure, pure sanctuary city who avoids all interaction with ICE. Um, and there are no people who say that we shouldn't vet people and reject some people from coming as refugees. So, in fact, I think the vetting just, process is already yeah, very, just, very just the implication that you know they're the only they're these people are the only people who are for anti-terrorist or anti-murderer is frustrating to watch. And I I think it's not something that they should get away with because that's not what the argument is. All right. Uh, Well, uh, at least thanks for being with us. Um, One day, I'm sure we'll have a 
podcast where we have you on and all the news about immigration is good. And uh, I don't know. Not for a while. Not for a while, though. Not for a while, though. All right. But thanks. Thanks, as always. And Zach, thank you. Uh, we will be right back. Hey, everybody. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. And I wanted to let you know that you can help us grow this podcast and grow the audience that you're a part of. Just go to iTunes and subscribe to So That Happened and leave a rating while you're there to let us know how we're doing. Doing so will help other people find us and allow this audience to grow and this podcast to flourish and become even better. So thanks very much for helping us out and for always being here for us. Hey, we're back. Now, uh, you know, along with Donald Trump and his faction in this town, there's putatively another faction of elected officials that are supposed to oppose Donald Trump, that being the Democratic Party. Uh, And I don't think they're off to that great a start. We talked last week about how the uh, DNC debate, where where people had an opportunity to draw contrasts, make big statements, be bold, ended up being kind of a watered-down affair. Over the weekend, we saw marchers turn out across the country in large numbers. Democratic electeds didn't come in front of them or behind them, except for John Kerry, who was walking his dog in the middle of the march. Uh, to talk about, <laughs> I was uh, he was a good guy. He actually, he, you know, he uh, he helped someone. Little uh, housekeeping note: Maxine Waters, Congresswoman from from um, from uh, California, what was in fact at the D.C. Women's March. So there was okay, there was at least play. one. I'm not, you know, I'm painting with a broad brush. I'm sure there are a few specific things, but institutionally, it was like the two things existed in different realms of existence, which is unfortunate, I think, for Democratic electeds who had a chance to be with their people. But Zach Carter, you have been really sort of like deep into the Democratic Party criminology of late. Yep. Tell me about how the loyal opposition is uh, faring. It's going. Um... I would say confusedly at best. There does not seem to be a, a, a real method to the Democrats' madness with this. Um, I think when you look at the nomination process, yeah. um, Donald Trump has put forward a ton of nominees for cabinet positions, um, which any honest Democrat just absolutely cannot stand. Uh, Rex Tillerson at Secretary of State, uh, a, a Hardee's CEO for Secretary of Labor who has a long history of labor violations. Right. So bad. Um, uh, there's just an enormous amount. Ben Carson at the at, for the Department of Housing and Urban Development that confirmed. Was, yeah. yeah, that was a confirmed flashpoint. And here, here he was confirmed unanimously, um, meaning all Democrats voted yes, including Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, who took some um, stick for it. And remember, Elizabeth Warren um, voted against you know Obama nominees because she thought they were you know too close to banks. Or you know, problematic for one reason or another. Right. If if you think that Michael Froman, the ambassador for trade uh, under Obama, was was not fit for that position, it is just flabbergasting that you would also think that Ben Carson belongs in the cabinet. Um, so so what's very odd here is that Democrats seem to think that they're going to get something out of out of voting these people through instead of just voting no. They're going to go through anyway. Republicans do in fact control the Senate. But I don't understand why Democrats can't just vote no and, and just make clear that they disapprove. Now, of what stuff. now? What if they're just trying to appear to be amicable and not make the mistake Mitch McConnell made, where he revealed early on that all he wanted to do was 
hinder President Obama. I think that is what people are trying to that, that that's that, that's we the political calculus people are talking about. But I don't I don't see the benefit. Frankly. We didn't find that out early on. He said that early on, but we found out about it years into the mess. Oh, yeah. I mean, we found My out that, that was, we found out that there was McConnell's plan from the beginning, but it took reporting to get that out. If you, t- like if you talk to and if you talk to Hill staffers about this at a lot of these offices, um, they will say that, look, we think that Mitch McConnell gumming up the works was really bad and we're against gumming up the works. They have it, it's 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 like this weird ideological commitment to the process of yeah. the Senate instead of to actual public policy outcomes, um, which seems a particularly strange fascination to have when the president is Donald Trump. And as we said, right. is already lying about crazy. The things. process of the Senate is also complete nonsense. Yeah, you can have uh, you can fill up the tree with amendments, <laughs> yes. and you can have a clay pigeon amendment that explodes into many little amendments. I mean, these are parliamentary maneuvers. Right. It's gibberish. Who cares? What I think is kind of insane, it, it, and, and I think I think that traditionally the confirmation process when it comes to cabinet members is awfully, awfully uh, go along to get along or get along to go along, whatever whatever that phrase is. So I'm not surprised under normal circumstances. I'm not surprised to see people be like, let the guy have his picks. These picks, however, are kind of for the most part, and there are some exceptions, I suppose, but for the most part, kind of uniquely weird and bad picks and should be slam dunk opposition. And up until I think the middle of this week, there was only one Democrat who had voted against every single one of them. And that was Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, senator from New York. But I think that the Democrats are making this kind of weird calculation. I think they're wrong, by the way, that and it goes to what you're talking about with process. I think they think that if they can pick spots, uh, enable good outcomes, perhaps occasionally working with the Trump administration, occasionally working against the Trump administration, voters across the country are going to say, you know what? Those Democrats did a great job. I'm going to vote for Democrats. But most people will tell you that voting patterns, especially in off off year elections, follow from the follow from the the idea that the outcomes are solely uh, related to what the president is doing yeah. and his party is doing. Democrats don't really have an opportunity to step in and like share the credit for anything the Republicans are doing here. Trump's really unpopular, by the way. Yeah, he's already super unpopular. 37% approval rating. Yeah, I mean, Bad. They, should, they should be honoring that. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, like, yeah, I mean, the Democrats are kind of stuck being the institutional avatars, the people who say that governing should work. And that kind of sucks, you know, because now you've got to there's, – there's that instinct to honor that creed. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is that, like, drawing a firm line worked for McConnell, and it worked great. And it's what works. Well, so here's the thing. There are a couple of areas where Donald Trump agrees with the Democratic Party. And and one of those uh, has has been made very clear right out of the gate. Uh, one of his first executive orders was to withdraw uh, the United States officially from President Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal with right. 11 other nations. Um, this is one of the signature foreign policy, you know, elements of of Obama's legacy that he wanted to secure, it is now dead. It's not happening. And one of the things that's very odd about this is that even though Obama really wanted this, essentially the Democratic Party did not. Right. You had just about every institution affiliated with the Democratic Party, whether it's an environmental group, a labor union, uh, you know, uh, consumer activists, um, all of them opposed it. A overwhelming majority, majority of Democrats in both the House and Senate repeatedly tried to block this. Um, and it's a weird case where Donald Trump's, you know, sort of particularly unique bl- bl- brand of nationalist policy overlaps with 
uh, a, a, a pro-worker kind of element of the of the Democratic Party. Now, he's going to do all sorts of other stuff that is there. There's just terrible for workers. And I think Democrats in some level are trying to figure out, OK, well, can we work with him on a trade deal? Can we work with him on an infrastructure bill? Uh, you know, I I. I, I don't know if there are going to be really that many opportunities for Democrats to actually come to the table for something constructive with with President Trump. And I do think that that's a tricky question for, for Democrats. But I don't understand why they why they can't vote against the things that they think are bad. You know, it's one thing to say, OK, maybe in the future you guys can vote together on something that is good. But it makes absolutely no sense to me to also be voting in favor of things that they believe to be bad. Yeah, it does. It does make sense. I think they believe that they can wedge Donald Trump and his Republicans apart from one another. Uh, and I don't see the point. The, I don't I honestly see the electoral point of that. It, it, if you if you pass a bill with Donald Trump and let's say it runs up the deficit, the same Republicans you just wedged away from Donald Trump will hit you with the deficit spending. And then they'll turn around they and do get something time. they want and not talk about the deficit spending. It's pretty weird. You know, in a rational, in a rational world, what the Democrats would be doing right now, we see you see Donald Trump, you know, go against TPP. It's dead in the water, but it's been dead in the water for some time. And a Democratic base is responsible for the T, the demise of the TPP. And, the, and, and, and for a large part, they're joined with a lot of Trump voters who also opposed it. But in a rational world, what the Democrats would do is say, what you've seen is your public pressure against the TPP has kept it from being passed now in two administrations. You need to keep it up and we'll be behind you. But the problem there is I don't think the Democrats electeds who talk about being against TPP sincerely are against TPP. And so it prevents them from like – actually making a sort of robust connection with their own base yeah. who sincerely don't want it either, who sincerely don't want it. Hillary Clinton was a great example of being very phony Absolutely, yeah, in her totally. opposition. But th Donald Trump is also now this week's signaled that he's going to tinker with NAFTA. Should Democrats work with him to make our trade arrangements more advantageous for workers? Well, why think, shouldn't they? I, I my, my own view on this stuff is, is that, look, when there, where there are actually opportunities to do good things, I think it's okay to do good things. Um, but I think if you do that, you have to be very, very clear on the bad things that they are bad. Because the, the administration is going to do essentially what yeah. it wants to do. Yeah. It has it has control of both chambers of Congress. Yeah. What you need it, for, for the Democrats to function as an effective opposition party, they need to communicate very clearly to the rest of the world that when bad things happen, they think that they are bad. They do not need to be legitimizing and normalizing things that are really extreme and, and, and crazy. And in a way, the failure to solidly oppose a Ben Carson nomination uh, is you not putting uh, – credit in the bank for when you want to come out and say we we agree on this right you know you need to you need to if you're gonna like be a spot picker you need to recognize that like it, you lose nothing you absolutely lose nothing by uniformly opposing ben carson no one's gonna dog you for that it, it may not even matter too much in the in the by it the won't matter he's around, gonna he's gonna but you bank a little bit of credit so that you can then come out and say this would actually help our base and i'm for it for that reason you need yeah. to if you're if you're an opposition party, you need to draw clear distinctions with the party that's in power because you are not actually capable of doing much policy wise. Yeah. And if you don't draw those clear distinctions, particularly when the president is coming into office with a 37 percent approval rating, you're not going to be able to to present yourself as a as a more popular alternative. Yeah, you're going to look you like you're along, just another one of those guys. You went along with something that 30 percent of people approve of. Ben Carson, by the way, that. in the revealing moments of his hearing, I know he paid a lot of lip service to, you know, the. 
the basic uh, functions of this agency are indispensable, blah, blah, blah. But when he was asked, like, should people be kicked off welfare? He said, yeah. To, are there too many people in housing? Yes, kick them out. It was like plan his day. He said the government literally warehouses people. Right, yeah, yeah. which is I, a, a very I dim mean, characterization. I, I, th- of- I, think, I think that what Warren maybe thinks she's doing is some kind of identity correction. She comes out and says, I talked to Ben Carson. He seems to be for all those things, these things, and she lists some things. We'll see how it goes. I'll be prepared to step in if he's wrong. Well, I mean, by the time you're prepared to step in if he's wrong, people are going to remember you you help confirm him. You know, that's not how identity correction works. I think it was a political miscalculation on her part. Yeah, it's I do pretty too. Clear. I do too. Eh, whatever. You know, the, you know what the real bad news is, is that I think uh, in this segment we've given Democrats a lot of good advice. And uh, uh, unfortunately, they're not listening. If you're at home, call your senator and tell them to fucking listen to the Said That Happened podcast. You don't have to say the F word. You don't. But go with that spirit. I think Arthur was talking to you, Jason. Oh. No, I was talking to them. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thanks. It's nice to know we're not so PC here. All right. Uh, <laughs> we, we, uh We'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Elise Foley. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, please subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.